because you're really freaking me out right now. Well, I, I'm looking at a bloody beach ball on my computer. Like, you know, I'm out of, I'm out of my element. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 69 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell. I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by my co-host in Whitby, Ontario, Aaron Bay. Hello. And we have on the line Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And once again, we have Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hey everybody. Okay, the first other one I want to talk about is the uh, the Apple Watch discussion. It's sort of a little bit of follow-up. So Ooh, follow-up. I love follow-up. Let's do that. Yeah, I think it was a good discussion there about things... I think I would agree oh, that the they've stalling, kind of stalled stalling, yeah. um, mm-hmm. in terms of new apps coming out where I get so much value out of the watch purely from what's pre-installed on it, right? Things that come from Apple. Right. Um, I really thought about it the other weekend where I said, you know, what I really need is more context from this watch. So I'm a modular watch face fan. So it gives me a whole bunch of details about what's going on, right? What today's mm-hmm. date is, the time, what do I have coming up next? on my calendar, um, and what's the temperature like outside. But when it comes to the weekend, like I don't care about half of that stuff, right? What I really want is more of my sports bits. And yeah, I could make it a glance, but the glances are so useful for me to quickly get to things I want to do. Like I want to change to another episode of a podcast, or I want to check my heart rate. I can't justify having like the ESPN or... Um, forget the other one the canadian one the sports one it's like a blue s tsn oh sport oh, sport yeah. sportsnet uh no 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 score. no score score the score the, the score. score the score i can't uh, just if having robin's listening he's there. gonna be like killing me <laughs> <laughs> sorry so i, I sorry, can't robin. justify having one of those glances on my watch all the time because i don't really care until it comes time for you know thursday night football or saturday yeah. Uh, college footballs and, and Sunday, Monday night, like more context would be nice. So like a card based type of system where like, Hey, this is what you're going to care about right now. And even if it was not intelligent, if I had to manually tell it Monday through Friday, this is what I want the watch face to be Saturday and Sunday. This is what I want the watch face to be. And, and the glances as well. I think that would be pretty cool. At least for my, t- you know, my standpoint. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, I, I put in the notes that um, on that same subject that uh, Brian Gillum has decided to stop publishing the um, uh, the watch, what is it called, watch, watch resources? That's it. Is that what it's called? Yes. Yes. Um, newsletter that he's been doing for the last little while. And, and basically because this, he said there's, like, no apps. I had a chance to talk to him before the Tech Talk. We were we met at Union Station and had a chat at the coffee shop before uh, before we headed down and yeah it was just sort of like there's there's nothing happening i mean he was really excited about the watch platform when it first came out he said but uh but you know it's just sort of it hasn't really panned out that well right so and i and i did overhear robin from the score talking about you know some of the things that like they would like to have video and things like that in their apps and stuff like that but they don't have the rights to that kind of stuff so and that makes it difficult i mean like you know and and the watch they, they put a lot of effort into their watch app uh like before we actually got the hardware and then once the hardware came out i think they were thoroughly disappointed it's not the because he did a presentation at a taco meeting didn't he uh, aaron yeah i believe so but yeah he was talking about robin was talking about how how the challenges they had to overcome once they actually got the hardware in hand and, and found out how slow the network was to refresh and, and that was with the first version of WatchKit, right 
So not, it's not, not and, and not much has changed, to be frank. Uh, Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Which is too bad. Um, I, so I'm sorry I didn't get the chance to talk to Brian at the event on Monday, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, I read his email where he – or not email, but uh, post where he was giving up on WatchKit resources. Sure. Um, and it makes sense, right? I mean, if nothing's happening, there's nothing to report. I feel like his enthusiasm has moved on to other f- subjects as well. Well, he was also feeling. saying that Natasha the robot was picking up a lot of the stuff that he was gonna he would put anyway. So, and, so there's not like there's no avenue for that kind of stuff to come. It just there's not enough of it, right? So, right, right, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And, and to follow up on uh, follow up on that too is there's uh, apparently a rumored March announcement for a new watch and possibly a new iPhone 6C. Did you guys see that? I did see that. That looks very interesting. Um, it feels like uh, that would, you know, what I think what the thing that really excites me about this isn't the announcement itself, but the fact that Apple is starting to uh, uh, maybe, hopefully, ship products on a different cycle. Uh, it would be really nice not to be waiting till September for everything, for a change. Uh, like the last few years, uh, they've really fallen into this uh, kind of big bang in the fall and, um, and nothing, nothing before that. Uh, so it would be really nice to, especially with the iPhone, which has been such a steady performer once a year, every year and just in the fall. So if we can have, um, a, a change up in the product line like this, uh, you know, it's unprecedented in the iPhone's history and it would be a really big change for Apple to do that. So I hope it's true. I mean, we knew there was going to be a new watch this, this year, just go around. Right. So, well, knowing, uh, you know, you can't know anything with Apple, but, <laughs> uh, let's well, face I mean, it, it what, would be... what I'm saying is like, we, we kind of know that they've gotten to a one-year cycle. We all knew when we bought our watches that this was going to be, you know, the first of many watches, right? Um, how do you feel about, you know, Apple rolls out with a new watch in, a, in, in the spring and, or early, late, late spring, I guess. Um, what do you think? Do you think you'll go and go ahead and just get the next watch and pass this one down to whoever in your family wants it or? Yeah, that seems potentially possible. Um, you know, depending what they do with it, of course. Right. I, I still like my watch. I uh, and uh, you know still use it every day. It's still an essential part of my life. So there will always be a watch on my wrist. Um, right. If if Apple does something whiz bang new, I can imagine something. You know, the most likely uh, visual upgrade will be it'll be thinner. That's my <laughs> yeah. that's my guess. I'm guessing it's going to be thinner on my wrist. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of looking at it right now in profile, if I can. You know, oh, it's the same. It's, it's, it's as thick as an iPhone one, almost. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I, I bet you it's thinner than an iPhone one, the original iPhone. But uh, I bet you it gets thinner in next time. Um, but as for any other upgrades, I don't know. I don't even know, man. It would have to be faster, right? I think it would really have to be faster. And I, I'll bet you the story around it would be like it, it'll be called Watch S, <laughs> and it'll 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 run your applications four times as fast. And so when you actually right. go to open, you won't see that little spinner anymore. It'll just snap open. It'll have, that, as, that as the cool nice. kids say, to snappy. You know, T-E-H? Yeah, yeah. Snappy, yeah. you know? Because mm-hmm. they're so excited. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I You know do. what I'm talking about. So uh, that'll probably be a big feature. And then who knows? Maybe like a built-in Wi-Fi radio. So it doesn't need to be tethered to your phone as much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Is but you know. with a 12.9-inch model? I, I, I don't think so, Tim. <laughs> yeah. But if they did, I know you'd wear it every day around my neck, like 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 uh, flavor flavor. <laughs> Check What's it out, up, boys. <laughs> yo yo. 
Um, yeah, but no. I think the, the, the essential problem, though, may remain the same. Um, even with faster, better performance, I suspect that the lack of compelling software for a watch form factor will continue to hold it back. I guess what we're looking for is kind of an X factor in terms of what will make a compelling watch app. Like We don't have a good answer to that yet. You know, like yeah, when we've yeah. remember before the watch came out and we were talking about this, and I think one of the things I was saying at the time, if I'm remembering right, is that the watch will represent something different for everyone. There will be a whole bunch of of interesting apps for the watch, but they'll be niche. Say for musicians, they might find like a a timekeeping app, you know, like a metronome that'll tap your wrist. Hey, I wonder if there's such a thing because that'd be an awesome idea, you know. So it would tap in time. That's actually a great idea. <laughs> My daughter plays piano mm-hmm. and she has a metronome going tick, tick, tick while she plays, right? Um, wouldn't right. that be awesome if you had a watch app that went tap, tap, tap to the time? Yeah, we mean with the haptic feed, feedback. Yeah, 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 the haptic mm-hmm. engine. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I wonder if that exists. Well, okay, anyway, don't let me get carried away here. Um, but like that, something like that for, for many different uh, walks of life. So, you know, no matter what your interest is, uh, there is a watch app for you. And that has not played out at all, I don't think. That hmm. there's, there's, there's no surfeit of niche apps for the watch that, um, that have covered every need. And so that every person out there with a watch may have a suite of apps that is just for them. That hasn't really played out. So this, this yeah. thought in my head that the watch was going to be this ultra-personal app platform hasn't played out. And I think it's primarily because there just aren't that many apps for the watch. And I don't know that a watch 2.0 that's faster and thinner is going to change that. I think it'll depend because one thing that's hard for me to tell with current apps, unless I really dig into their release notes and figure out uh, the details, it's hard for me to tell who has updated to watchOS 2 versus still being a watchOS 1 app. So... Um, the gains from watchOS 2 are not as obvious to me. Uh, of course, if the device itself was, you know, it had a faster processor and also uh, had corresponding battery life that was, you know, in my, the battery life is excellent for now with the, um, the rather meager processor. But if it had a stronger processor but could still maintain as good or hopefully even better battery life, I think that'd be mm. great. Because if they can add more things, like here's an example of like the most common thing that I get when I talk to people, uh, at least in my area. A lot of folks around here want to use it as like a Fitbit type of replacement. They want to mm-hmm. have not only you know heart rate and other sorts of things, they also want to have GPS location, right? So they want to see it on a map. They don't want to necessarily have their phone with them because if you're running, that's not always convenient. So I think think until a podcast here, (laughs) yeah, apologize for that. So I I think until that happens, you won't see a lot of the, like at least a whole category of apps. Like they they just cannot make as good of a fitness app without that that additional sensor to really decouple it from the phone in at least some limited circumstance. Like be that as it may, I think there's all sorts of opportunity here. Um, And I'm going to peace out for a second here. You're going to peace out, yo. <laughs> we have to Come cut back. this part off. We can see what he's barking at. 
I have actually noticed a few improvements in some apps, and I suspect it's because they're they're using the new Watch uh, OS 2.0. Like, for instance, one thing I use uh, is the Swarm app, and uh, with that app, I can actually click on it, and it's very responsive. Like, you get a little bit of spinny dial, but it's not like it used to be. Like, you know, you would be waiting like almost 30 seconds for something to happen. Um, let's just talk about the Swarm app behind me. Um, so. Mm-hmm. What I've noticed, though, is so, and I can tell it's changed because now, now I can actually check in on my watch, and and uh, you know, and then it gives me feedback right away, saying it doesn't necessarily tell me I'm the mayor or whatever, but it tells me that I've where I've checked in and that kind of stuff. Another app, um, I'm going to use it. I'm going to talk about it. My pick, but that one definitely is is very responsive, and it, and I think I've noticed think better better performance out of the Twitter app and the mail app. I don't my mail for some reason doesn't respond to me right away, but if I open up, if I want to open my mail. Uh, it's very fairly quick to get in there, a lot quicker than it used to be. Like it was, it was almost like to the point where I wouldn't even go there with with these things. And, and unlike you guys, I really only wear my watch when I go out of the house. So today was a an Apple, another Apple event, and at a client. So I took my watch with me, and so I got to play around with it on the on the streetcar and stuff like that. You know, so so I have noticed some improvements in some of the apps, and they, it's got to be Watch OS. Maybe you know, and I think like Jaime was saying, you. If you can't tell the difference between a 1.0 and a 2.0 app or when one has been updated, yeah. then it's really hard to know where to pin the blame. Uh, okay, Jaime, yeah. go back and yeah. finish your sentence. Yipe! So I think Yipe! having <laughs> So I think having you know those extra bit of sensors will really help because you know, again, there's this whole category of apps that you really can't do as well as even as something as simple as a Fitbit or something more sophisticated like a Microsoft Band. And granted, those are somewhat different, right? Those are much more specialized devices. But I think that's it's holding back a whole category of folks who clearly have interest, right? Like a lot of folks, um, to Apple's credit, like the watch draws a lot of attention from from friends or or from people who are just kind of casually, you know, at the coffee shop or something. So the interest is there. The desire is there. They even have this use case that they have in mind. It's just not quite meeting their needs yet. And, and therefore... Um, you know, developers can't meet their needs either, right? Because some of this requires the hardware investment as well. Yeah. So I look forward to the the Apple Watch too, and and likewise to the the iPhone 6C. Um, I mean, it's not a device I would buy because I prefer the more premium ones. But I think as a yeah. developer, I'm super interested in it because having a you know somewhat relatively low cost, right? This this isn't going to compete with like a $100 phone or anything. It's clearly not that. Yeah. But anything that can drive down the average selling price and make it easier for folks to join the um, you know, latest and greatest, you know, we hope it's going to have Apple Pay on there for, you know, with Touch ID, all these wonderful things that can just push out these old iPhone 4s and iPhone 4Ss, you know, eliminate the, the lower end hardware and also <laughs> eliminate the three and a half inch screen, which is you know, auto layout and stack views and stuff help, but it's it's kind of nice to know that something is going to be above the fold and when you're designing a UI. Yeah, I mean, and it'd be nice, like you said, to get a cheap cheap device that handles the uh, 3D touch, which we can't simulate right now, right? So, well, I, I wonder if it will. So even for a while, the the lower end phones didn't have things like Touch ID, right? Whereas the higher right. higher end phones did, maybe this one won't even have that. Yeah, because I got my I have my app out right now, one of my apps out right now, just for testing a. A refactor, the refactor I've been talking about for the last couple of months, and and um, uh, some of the feedbacks come back to me as, oh, you should add in, you know, 3D touch to do this. I'm like, well, great. How can I test that? <laughs> you know, so because I don't have a device, I can can actually see it. Get or, them to buy you one, man. It's 
obvious. No, it's me, my app. I have oh. to fork out. It's, Crap. Yeah, so, yeah. That's yes, okay. Yeah. It's not that obvious. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, back in the day, I had, you know, when, when things were good, I, I always had, a, you know, a handful of devices here, like several iPads to test on. And, you know, I have an iPad 2 here, well, in the form of a mini. You know, I have a 5S uh, and I have the 6 Plus, right? So so I'm down to, like, a minimum number of devices to test on, so... Yeah, there was a time when you could pretty much have one of each, remember? But uh, those days are gone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's too many of them now. Yep. Too many different Apple products. (laughs) It's really hard to stay on top of this stuff. You know, with the, you're talking about like people wanting Fitbit functionality. You know, it's noteworthy that I still have to carry a Fitbit in my pocket. You know? Really? Yeah. Um, We talked about this when the watch came out, but the the thing is, is that uh, I cannot use the watch as a step counter. Right, because right. Um, oh, yes, I, yes. I I use the majority of my steps on a treadmill at my desk with uh, my hands up there, right? Yeah, not yeah. not uh, waving around as I walk to to determine if I'm making a step or not. So it feels like Apple needs to do something about that too. And I don't I don't know what it is if it's smarter algorithms, but I I don't think I'm the only one in that position. Um, the other thing is like my phone, which is in my pocket all day, is also counting my steps because I've got the motion processor. In yeah. the iPhone 6. And if I look at the health data uh, and compare my steps on my phone to those from my Fitbit, the iPhone dramatically under-reports the number of steps mm-hmm. I take. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because it's pulling data just from the watch or if it amalgamates it somehow so it knows what it's doing. But um, it's way off. Let's just put it that way. Way off. Well, so very often my, my phone is sitting on my desk. So if you're saying that when I'm walking around the house or whatever, the, the watch is sort of tracking what I'm doing... Is there, it a... is, yeah. Oh, okay, I see. Okay. Yeah, and it, it reports that data to the health app, right? So you can right, go into your yeah. health app and you can see your steps taken per day yeah, as yeah. as it knows it, right? Um, but if you're if you're walking on a treadmill with your hands on your desk, it's not going to detect a step taken. But if you're walking around, it should, right? Mm-hmm. By the same token, your phone is in your pocket, possibly, and when you're walking, it should record your steps then too. But then it's got to put that data together. And make it somehow sensible. You got the resources of Apple that should be totally doable, um, which is actually brings us to Pedometer Plus 2.3, which you put into link in here for Tim. I did, yes. Because I think I think Dave, this is underscore David Smith, yes. right? Yes, it is. Yep. Um, he he is dealing with this very issue in his up- update to Pedometer Plus uh, because that's what he does. He's got. I'll just read this sentence here. The concept of a fixed priority device doesn't really work for step data. As you move between the various activities of your daily life, the best device for measuring your movement is constantly switching. Thus, Mm -hmm. you need a data merging algorithm that can dynamically analyze your step data and determine which device's data is best at any particular time. And that's exactly what Pedometer++ now does. So it goes through your daily data, and it dynamically determines which device to use for a particular point in the day. This is exactly what you need. I should download this. (laughs) <laughs> this might actually this might actually take the Fitbit out of my pocket. See, he says this in, in his testing of the health app. It was undercounting most users by around ten to twenty percent, which I believe. I'm going to get this. Why did you put this link in here, Tim? Was there something else you wanted to say about it? Yeah, no, I I, I saw it and uh, I, I forgot why I put it on. To be honest with you, I put it on early earlier in the week, probably like the day after the first last. Oh, show. You, you were drunk. Okay, I get it. <laughs> drunk. I know you. Big drinker. I was high on iOS. Yeah, aren't we all? <laughs> this is a really cool um, blog post because um, 
this whole blending of sensors is actually kind of an interesting topic. It's something I did in a uh, in a past life where we had to take in two sources of data that could be constantly switching and try to figure out which of these sensors is lying to us and pick the other one. Mm. It's it's mm. not a, a trivial problem, so no, I can see why um, what Apple's implemented is kind of more the naive solution because it it works, you know, most of the time. It's that last twenty percent that's really hard to do if you don't have dedicated engineering time for it. Yeah, and yet you're David Smith. You're underscore David Smith, a, a, an accomplished programmer, to be sure, but just one man. And yet he solved this problem, apparently. Right. Makes you wonder. Makes you wonder. That's all. Apple yes. Tech Talk. Yeah, so <laughs> well, you, would you like to do the introduction there, Aaron? Okay. Um, Toronto is the first victim of Apple's Apple TV Tech Talk, uh, which is uh, going to be wheeling through... Hmm, where are they next in... on? Thursday, I guess, you know, even uh, before the show airs, right? They're going somewhere. Anyway, they were in Toronto on Monday, and there were about 350 of us, I gathered, um, at uh, this hotel in Toronto, which is quite lovely. Mm -hmm. They spent a day doing talks on various aspects of development for Apple TV. And it was pretty, um, I would say it was pretty straightforward stuff. I mean, if... um, if you spend some time developing on Apple TV, then many of these issues are going to be familiar to you. Los Angeles! National City, as is known on Supergirl. Uh, that's where they're going to be tomorrow. Is that what that is? National City? Yeah. It's patently L.A., isn't it? Don't you think? I, you know, I have no opinion. I didn't I knew, get that. Gotham is, New- Gotham is New York. And so yeah. Is, yeah, is, yeah. Metropolis wh- is New York, isn't it? I think so. I don't know. I mean, spoilers I, for this past Monday, but they did have earthquake? an earthquake. An so. earthquake, exactly. I, I kind of interpreted it as California, but I didn't know where. Well, well, it could have been Seattle. No, no, no that, they would have been, been underwater then, and then like <laughs> Aquaman would have come out probably. That's yeah. true. Instead, we have the Martian Manhunter. Yeah, what so spoilers? So, uh, what is that? Come on, they've had a full week since. Okay, never mind. I just watched it tonight. I My daughter's a big TV, fan. Yeah. Um, mm. Okay, anywho, um, so yes. Yeah, Toronto was the very first stop on this tour, and so we had a full day of sessions on, I think, everything, I would say, soup to nuts on Apple TV development, um, and they, you know, all around particular specific issues around developing for the Apple TV. You know, given its roots in iOS, there's a lot of stuff that they covered um, which is specific to the Apple TV, and um, so I'm thinking a lot of m- information about media playback. Good stuff on AV Foundation and AV Player View Controller. Uh, I learned something uh, that will be useful for Magpie, which I did not know. I had to go up and talk to the... um, Oh, sorry. Forgotten his name now. Josh Tisbury. Thank you. And uh, to kind of get some confirmation from him about one of those issues after the fact. And that's actually the really big value is, is having access to the developer relations team at Apple and being able to talk to them face to face. Uh, I don't even think you can have this kind of access at WWDC because, you know, you're competing with 5,000 people, not 350. Well, there's not that many people <laughs> in the labs. And just, just to, as a pro tip to anybody who's going to the tech talks, which we didn't know and it would have been nice to know, is I looked at my Apple TV as I walked out the door. But if you have some stuff and you want to bring your Apple TV to the to the Tech Talk, you can actually bring it, and they have TVs set up for you to plug in and show your apps and, and go through stuff with them as well. Yeah, so. the the reminder email that they sent out had that information in it. Oh, did it? Okay. Yeah, it did. I don't read um, email. You know that. Yeah, I guess not. But uh, yeah, they were they were pretty clear about that. So okay. read your emails, people. That's the big thing. 
It actually shows you where you're going too, which is very useful. But having that access was was pretty amazing. Now I didn't have any questions about Apple TV or anything else that you know to, to take me into that room, the labs room, and and talk to someone about. But just the informal chat with the developer relations team, as well as they had uh, in in our case at least uh, representatives from the Canadian App Store, so uh, editorial staff, so that uh, you could sort of talk to them, get a sense for the sorts of things that they look for and that they're interested in. And they, you know, it, I thought this was interesting. They're looking for the next hit all the time. You know, they want to know about apps that are coming out, and they're encouraging people to contact them when you're launching an app. And they're like, launch on the Thursday so that yeah. we can be the first people to tell them, tell about the uh, your new app. So or launch um, before Thursday, actually. They, they or, do the ro- they just the before content. Thursday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Because that's when the refresh happens. Uh, that's known information. There's nothing new there that they launch yeah. on thir- or they refresh on Thursdays. But overall, I would say the technical content itself um, is is not. You know, it's stuff that you would probably already know about if you had done any Apple TV de- development. Um, mm-hmm. If if you haven't done any Apple TV development, then you can definitely learn something here. I would say, but for the most part, uh, I think it's really sort of catching people up. On, on what it's like developing for Apple TV and um, giving them tips and tricks, uh, the sort of big issues to watch out for, things like the limitations of the uh, App Store, for example, um, things we already know about, but uh, the 200 megabyte app download limit from the App Store, mm-hmm. but all the issues around the on-demand resources that you can bring to bear with your app to push that limit up, up to 20 gigabytes, right? which is yeah. the maximum size that you can give to your app, uh, which is quite enough. Thank you very much. I hope nobody does that. Um, <laughs> but you can even, like, sideload some on-demand content when your app downloads automatically. And so there, were all, there was quite a bit of talk about that as well. So, uh, like, your 200-megabyte app download comes, but if you want certain content to be available on that first-run experience, you can, you can set it so that up to 2 gigs of content can be available at the same time as you download the app for the first time. And then, of course, you can trigger content to download you know, at your, your time of choosing, basically, any time after that. But it seems that, like they're very conscious, of course, of the volume of content they allow with your apps, but uh, they, th- they seem to be throwing the doors wide open in terms of what you can do after the fact. So all kinds of stuff like that, Apple TV-related stuff, uh, making a, a good listing in the App Store, putting together the, um, the top-shelf content that uh, is an option available to you. Uh, I guess one of the big things I took away, you know, I'll I'll take it back to the beginning of the day when I was there and I was talking to a fellow from the editorial team. Um, Actually, I think it was Josh Tidsbury at that point. And he was saying, what are you looking to get out of today? And uh, someone I was standing with said, I just want to hear what Apple has to say. You know, like I'm not necessarily here to develop for the Apple TV. I just want to know what you guys care about. You know, and I think as as Apple developers, uh, knowing Apple's mind is as important as knowing what's what the technologies are. You know, so that was a very valuable thing, and I think it was a comment that I made myself later on, thinking that it was very peculiar that Apple has two new platforms this year, the watch and the TV, and uh, you know, while while there was WWDC for the watch, you know, the TV got the tech tour which I think is a very focused event and a sign of how seriously Apple takes the TV as a platform. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And I think, as we talked about earlier, um, I think, or feel, anyway, right now, that the TV has more potential than the watch as a platform. Yeah, well, I did speak to Sean, and I, I'm going to look up her name. Um, she's the lady that hosts the uh, the um, um, Apple Design Awards. Um, she was telling me that that uh, with WWDC last year and the watch sort of coinciding, like the release of those being at the same time, they didn't have time to do a tech talk necessarily for that kind of thing. But they haven't really done a tech talk like this. The last one they did was 2013 for the uh, when Sprite came out. And they had that, I think uh, it was probably an iOS 7, iOS 8 best practices sort of tour, right? But yeah, I, I don't remember, but yeah, something like that. Yeah, I think it was yeah. iOS 7 when iOS 7 came out. Yeah, and because it, it, and that was a lot of they, it was a very similar presentation. They did a they did sort of a kickoff uh, talk at the beginning, and then they went through you know various segments. It was a single track sort of conference, except for the fact that you could go one day for iOS and the next day for SpriteKit or for game development specifically, right? In which they covered off some of the SpriteKit stuff, but. Yeah, but it's been, it's been, I mean, and, and the thing about it is too, if you do go to these things, um, make sure that you send, get somebody's email address from, from Apple and make sure you send a note to them that they can share with their managers to say, yes, we want more tech talks. Mm-hmm. It's a very important thing because, because they need to, they have to justify their existence as well. Right. So, mm-hmm. and the, the more, more favorable, um, you know, reviews they get from the community, the more likely they are going to get approval to do this kind of stuff in future. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, like to me, that was a huge takeaway from that whole event was just how interested the developer team was in hearing from us. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was actually like blown away by that, by that attitude. And um, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to just come out here right now and say it. Uh, like, was that last week's or the week's before show where I was reading this uh, article talking about Apple wanting to support developers as much as possible, and I couldn't finish the sentence. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Uh, I was just really badly wrong about it. just uh, no, no way that Apple feels that way, or at least the developer team at Apple feels yeah, that way. Yeah, I mean, the developer relations team, I think I think they're relatively accessible. I mean, I don't take as much advantage of it as I, as I probably could, but, yeah, I, I do want people to understand that, that I've always found them to be very accommodating. I mean... Within limits. I mean, there's only so much they can do because the way the nature of the way Apple is set up. But they do do they do want to hear from people, and like any other corporation, they need our positive feedback and negative feedback to take back to their managers and make yeah. changes. Yeah. So anyway, I was I was very uh, I was very warmed by what I witnessed on Monday, and um, uh, inspired as you are at any developer event, uh, and especially one with uh, my fellow tacoers uh, who were there uh, in force. So uh, it was a great day all around. Uh, what do you guys think of the latest development with the Apple TV uh, regarding the streaming TV service to be on hold or on the shelf or whatever the words were used today? Did yeah, you guys bring that up about to- this? Yeah, I, I was going to put that in a, a link in the sh- notes about that, but I, I guess I didn't get around to it. But yeah, a, a very curious thing. I think that's part of what we surmised was some of the impetus behind why they came out with it, or why they waited so long to have a TV mm-hmm. uh, platform that we could write to, and and why they're waiting for this kind of stuff. And obviously, um, like Apple Pay, which relies on on third party corporations buying in. Um, so this is Apple specifically having their own content that they would produce or like, like similar to how Amazon and Netflix does, or is this, no, this would be from my understanding. And of course, selling shows. Yeah, it would be packaging up, uh, 
packages of, of channels that you could buy for a subscription right. service. Right. And it, it just sounds like the content owners were wanting more money than Apple was willing to spend and, and you know, more money than Apple wanted to pass on to us, the consumers, which is a good thing. Uh, mm-hmm. So so it looks like they've reached some kind of an impasse for now, at least, which is really too bad. Yeah, this is still going to be years away. Um, it's hard for me to get excited, too, about this because I know that, you know, even if Apple does succeed at those negotiations and bring that to market, it's going to be U.S. only and, <laughs> you know, and maybe Canada five or ten years later. So you think the mm. deadline's pushed back for you, Mark. It's pushed yeah, way I, back for us. I don't see that as a major <laughs> issue, but, uh, you know. Okay. No, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, it, it would be nice, though. Like, I can see the benefits of it, and uh, I think Apple has a very clear picture in their minds of what such a service would look like. Um, it is a good picture. But uh, it is a long way off, man. These entrenched interests are just not going to change the way they do business anytime soon. Well, I don't know if it's if it's as far off as all that. I mean, look at look at what happened with the music industry. They had to move quickly. They had to pivot quickly, I should say. When yeah, but like they were Apple forced to. Exactly. Right. Right. So yeah, but how how are these uh, old guard uh, content producers on television going to be forced? Except if by uh, a massive drop in cable subscriptions. Do you know what I heard? I read today, yesterday, actually, was that um, online advertising has surpassed television advertising in budgets. Hmm. There's a lot more money going into um, into online, you know, mobile or whatever uh, web. I guess web advertising than. Um, so, so it may be that that the whole old—I mean, the old model of, of reason why shows were made in the first place was to put bums in front of seats to sell soap, you know, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's changed now. When you have networks like HBO and networks like uh, AMC and uh, Netflix and now Amazon as well producing their own shows, right? Um, they're they're—I think those are—I think believe those are subscription-based shows as well, right? Like, and I, like I don't get Amazon myself. Like, you watch Amazon, do you, Mark? Uh, sometimes I have I have Prime, so uh, oh, you have Prime, watch, yeah. Occasionally I watch it. Yep. Yeah, so I mean, so that's sort of a, a members-only kind of service, like HBO is, I guess, as well. But um, but the, those kind of shows, and we're getting a lot better shows out of out of those networks now. You know, obviously things like The Walking Dead and and. Um, Boardwalk Empire and all those kind of things that come out of those networks where they're not restricted by uh, an advertiser's, you know, uh, whims to basically produce whatever whatever show they want to produce, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I mean that maybe that Apple in its own way may change the way once they get involved in this, and I think I think it's inevitable that they will, right? Um, they better do it before Microsoft does, but. Yeah. Um, you know, it's inevitable. And when they get in there, they'll, they, you know, what kind of things will they produce, right? Like, you know, would, would Apple ever get behind something as, as you know, extreme as, as like a Walking Dead type of show? You know, I, I doubt it. Seriously. I don't see Apple producing TV, even though that was a thing that came out fairly recently. But mm-hmm. uh, but making deals with, um, you know, these, these producers uh, seems like a great idea. I just, you know, again, I don't. And and you know the cost, right? Think about it, like right now, for example, HBO sells you know the a non cable package version of their service that anyone can buy, right? Is that for fifteen a month? Um, no one's disputing that. Excellent. So that's exactly how it is. <laughs> I think um, that's right. And, I, I, yes, I can't recall. And I believe Showtime is doing something similar or AMC uh, for maybe a little less a month, but thereabouts. So ten to fifteen dollars a month gets you one 
channel, one service provider, if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So putting together a package of 20 of them, for example, just throwing a number out there, um, would have to cost a significant amount of money in order to make that worthwhile for these content providers, right? So like HBO would be asked to say, you know, we're obviously not going to be able to pay you $15 a month because, you know, it's not worth that much. So how about, you know, we give you $5 a month, but we start delivering you many, many more providers, subscribers rather. I don't know. I don't know if that math is going to work out. And I think that's probably at the heart of what is wrong here because Apple has to, has to land those big fish. You know, they can't come to market with, you know, you know, lifetime and, and home and garden television. Uh, that may be a Canadian one only, sorry, but, uh, you know, smaller (laughs) players is what I'm trying to say. You know, the ones that were willing to, you know, receive a much lower amount. Wait, they don't have home and garden in the States? Oh, no, they I doubt it. Those are recognizable person, person. to me. Yeah. Oh, okay. They do. HGTV. Yep. HGTV, okay. I yeah. thought that was a Canadian thing for some reason. Very good. Okay, so anyway, these, these you know, smaller HZ players. TV or something like that. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no. So I don't, I don't know where that's going to, you know, land eventually. But um, someone's got to give. And... You know, I think Apple is looking at that and saying, well, you know, we can charge people $200 a month for a package, but nobody's going to pay that. Mm. Or very few people are. So how much did you say Apple would charge? I said 200 Uh I don't, you know, like I'm just pulling numbers out of my butt right now. But yeah, I, you, know, I, you know, it's funny that the funny thing about I find with Apple is that their prices end up being a lot lower. I think they have a much bigger market than other players do, right? So Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you look at look at Amazon's had to lower their prices for storage, and Google has as well. Because when Apple came out and sort of said, "Ah, and you can have it for oh, free for three months," you know. Oh, with Apple Music, you mean? I don't know what storage or iCloud or isn't isn't iCloud a chargeable thing now? Like you can pay, you can iCloud storage is something that you pay for, but Apple's is more expensive than everyone else's. Is it? Oh yeah. Oh okay. Oh yeah, considerably more. Wrong Um, again, honey. Wrong again. Yeah. Sorry. Um. (laughs) Did you want to say anything about the event, Tim? Um, no, you pretty much said it. I just want to give uh, Sean Purden her due. That was her last name. I couldn't remember her name. I mean, I, I've you know, I've, I think I've mentioned on the show before. I've met John Galency before and, and uh, had a chance to talk to him one on one about my apps and had him look at my apps. And in fact, he looked at Magpie if I remember correctly. Yes, he did. Um, and uh, you know, and and I he made I, nice, appreciative noises. He did, which is good. I mean, you know. He could have said your your scroll view was all choppy and whatever. Well, he couldn't have because it's smooth as glass. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, yeah, no, it was a good event. I, I like those kind of things. Uh, I found, you know, it's similar to what, what Aaron sort of said, I, I find it sort of, it's a lighter version of a WWDC. There is the deep dives for some people um, in terms of in terms of kind of the content you're going to get. Because a friend of mine on Slack was asking whether he's going to go see the one in Berlin and he was wondering whether he, you know, should make the effort to go and go to it and i said yeah definitely you know like it's it's worthwhile even just to meet the meet the people and get the the first hand um knowledge transfer you know that's that's always worth it and then you can you can find out that i've been told things by going to these events not specifically from apple but from other developers as well when you're networking it's a great way to share and share ideas totally with people yes. and experiences and that. that's one of the reasons why aaron and i go to taco on a regular basis and i know jaime goes to meetups in seattle right so yeah. Mark, Mark doesn't talk to anybody. We found out last week. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> he talks to me <laughs> for what it, for what that's worth. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that's worth. <laughs> yeah, just what I just said. Okay. Um, 
Well, I am going to the Tech Talk next week, so. I'm well, there you go. Yeah, so if you're going to be the Tech Talk in Cupertino, um, oh, by the way, it is going to be on the campus, Mark. I, I asked, uh, I asked uh, Sean about that. Yeah, it's um, not at One Infinite Loop though. It's right next door though. Oh, is it? Yep. Oh, yep. Snap. You were lied uh, to, Tim. Yeah, I know I was. Well, you know, she's from California. You can't trust those people. Uh, that's true. I've heard. Knife that. in the back. <laughs> What do you want to talk about next? Um, well, open was, source well, I on say, Linux. I was, was going to say there was there oh, was there was a small announcement last week. Um, we kind of talked about it on. We the show. did. This should be follow up. F you, Tim. F you, F you, Aaron. Um, yeah. So this little um, technology called Swift went open source and take it away. You want me to take it away? Well, sure. it's just it's kind of embarrassing, right? Because. You know, in the in the time between our recording last week and it coming out on Saturday, yeah, they they released it. <laughs> so um, I'm listening to myself go, you know, the, the the few of us talking there, you know, it's got to be, you know, any time now. Yeah, Come on, Apple, patter, get hello. Out. Yeah. <laughs> so um, exactly. no, here we are, and uh, it's brilliant. And not only is it amazing that <laughs> I don't even know where to start here. It's just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, because Apple not only released Swift as an open source project, but they opened up a whole whack of open source software onto GitHub. And so now if you go to github.com slash Apple, you can see this massive wealth of software that's out there, mm-hmm. the Swift programming language, and some surprises like a foundation uh, implementation in Swift showing that they're going to be moving to a, a Swift native foundation framework mm-hmm. um and you can actually look at the source code which is phenomenal see how nsra is going to be implemented in swift you got swift llbm vm lldb clang uh a new thing called the swift package manager what's that it's a package manager for swift and i think this is probably going to end up replacing cocoa pods and carthage for some people perhaps mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, like, and it's all open. And the other thing is that's great about this is that the commit history, like, you go to the Swift um, project, and I'm looking at it right now, github.com slash apple slash Swift, and there's 29,410 commits. And you can look at the very first commit by Chris mm-hmm. Latner, mm-hmm. Uh, like, some four years ago. It's wow. nuts. Yeah. Like, they, the whole com- commit history is in there. Uh, so it's, it's pretty crazy stuff. Yep. Uh, it is a true open source project uh, from Apple. You know, I know Apple's been in, been doing open source for many years, but this feels like their most open implementation of open source <laughs> yet done. Hmm. So it's super exciting. Now, there's um, there's some news in here, too. One of the things is a project here called Swift Evolution, and that's basically uh, a set of documentation uh, talking about the future of Swift. And so the public, such as we are, are participating in this process. So there's documents here uh, of proposals, and the proposals, you know, there's currently seven here uh, that are being written and are being discussed in some detail. Hmm. And one of the things that we're learning is that there's going to be a Swift 2.2 release in the spring, and a they're working on Swift 3.0, which is going to bring some significant changes to the language. And that'll probably be launched, uh, saying, fall 2016. So we're probably going to see it at WWDC next year mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and have that usual sort of run-up to the iOS 10 release, no doubt, and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they're making a whole bunch of big changes to that, but it's all in the public eye right now. Mm. Uh, so this is 
a really big release, uh, and it's a huge day or a huge week, <laughs> huge year for Apple uh, and for the Swift programming language. And of course, <laughs> I almost forgot, but um, they also included, as promised, um, an implementation uh, of Swift for Linux, uh, yes. including installers for Ubuntu in particular, so that uh, people running Swift can uh, can put that stuff on their own servers and start running and building frameworks against it. Like things like Perfect, for example, that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So whew, it's it's big time, baby. This is it. Um, the future starts today. Mm-hmm. So we're all very excited. Um, and in fact, uh, IBM actually did this. Uh, we have. Do we have that link here? Um, to IBM's uh, sandbox. Yes. Yes. Here it is. So mm-hmm. there's a link there in the show notes for IBM's Swift sandbox, and this is a a web based uh, playground, as it were. Uh, for writing Swift, and this is running on Linux servers being hosted by IBM. You know, IBM and Apple are are pretty tight these days, so this is uh, a great thing for for IBM and a great thing for Apple. And actually, IBM has their own um, Swift page. And let me uh, see if I can find that quickly. Put that in the show notes too. Hmm. Do a search while on while you're doing that, did you know that, that our own Here's Greg Heo got a pull request approved by Chris Lander? No, really? Yeah, he's now part of part of the uh, part of the people who responsible for Swift. Fantastic! I didn't know that. When did he mention that on Monday? Uh, yes, he did. Yeah. Ah, he wasn't talking to me. Anyway, um, here's the link, and I'm going to put that right below the Swift Sandbox one. Um, and so, IBM is uh, jumping in on this big time, and. Uh, we're all happy for that. So, uh, yeah, I think that's about what I have to say. But, uh, I mean, this is such a huge issue that uh, it's kind of hard to encapsulate in just a few uh, words. But um, What does Jaime have to say about it? Yeah. I think it's great. Um, I think we'd mentioned before that things like the, um, you know, the perfect app server project that we talked about two episodes ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think it would have really happened had Swift not been on a course to be open sourced, and of course now it is. And it is really cool. I, I highly recommend folks to look at the Swift Evolution Project because that's where you're going to find out what exactly is going to break in the upcoming year. Like, for example, they're removing the increment and decrement operators. And not so bad, right? So it's my variable plus plus, my variable minus minus, that sort of thing. Not so bad. Uh, the interesting one right now is the better translation of Objective C APIs into Swift, where the the gist of it is that you take API calls that are much wordier because of the nature of Objective C. So they use the um, UI Bezier path example, where you would have a function called um, what's the longest one I can find here, add quad curve to point, and in Swift that would be just add quad curve to, and you know that the type is a CG point because that's just a given thing coming in from the the parameter, right? So it's not it's not like Objective-C where heaven only knows what was going in there because if it was defined as like ID, it, it could be anything. Throw in it's dynamic, I mean, it's dynamic. Exactly. Just put whatever garbage you want in there. With Swift, <laughs> that's not really the case. You can have much more guarantees about what's going on, so it's it's not as wordy because it doesn't need to be as self-documenting in the way that uh, that Objective, or at least not self-documenting in the way that Objective C had to be, if you wrote it in a way that expressed to the person, "Hey, um, this is a point. This is a Bezier path, and so on and so forth." But that one's interesting. I'm hoping there'll be a nice little migrator because that 
I mean, that's that's a really extensive be. change, right? It breaks every line of code that talks to uh, Cocoa Touch. Yeah. But it, it looks like it's, um, at least in the example they gave, it looks like it's a trivial transformation uh, from their side because they know what API calls they had before, what they mapped to. It seems like the perfect thing for a migrator. Definitely. Well, they've been doing that, right? And so, I mean, that's something that we can take heart from. You know, like earlier, if you remember, before Swift 2 came out, I was complaining about how the tooling was immature and I wasn't ready to start working in Swift. And, you know, with all the changes in particular, that it would be difficult to update your projects or onerous, let's just say. And um, when Swift 2 came out and I started working in Swift, uh, you know, finding it much more stable and usable, uh, I was kind of hoping that the major breaking changes would stop. <laughs> so um, I'm really going to be leaning on that migration tool that comes out in Xcode 8 along with Swift 3. But they've got a pretty good history of, of having, to my experience, solid migration tools for when they move from Swift 1 to 2. Um, I had the experience of using it on a fairly large code base uh, in a previous project. So hopefully that that record remains intact of having a good migrator. And going so. back to this IBM Swift sandbox, I would recommend folks read the blog post that we have because it is really neat. So I don't know who at IBM got the cool job to <laughs> yeah. just join all the cool technologies, right? So this is you know open source Swift on Linux, technically running in Docker, another hot uh, technology oh, over the wow. past couple of years. Who can even understand that stuff? It, it's Docker. it's so oh. fantastic and cool. Brain hurt. So Docker, I know. the uh, containerization <laughs> technology. I'll include a link here. I had a business idea at one point where uh, that was reliant on knowing Docker, and I had to give it up because it was just too brain-melty. <laughs> what Docker? <laughs> it's a nifty thing. I'm sure folks have seen the the logo. It's the container ship slash blue whale. Coolest kind of thing. logo ever. It's uh, it, it's interesting. But I, I would highly recommend folks check out the different Swift examples that they have. So... Uh, of course, they do have one that's just straight up normal Swift that you could easily run anywhere, right? Like running uh, QuickSort, for example, or Fibonacci sequence. The interesting ones, as far as IBM's putting it on Linux, not just for a, hey, check the box, I put it on my resume sort of thing that some happy, lucky individual put out there. Uh-huh. Um, it actually shows you how Swift can interact with the system itself, in this case, a Linux system where they let you, um, so filestat.swift is what I'm looking at right now, mm-hmm. and it runs through and it gives you the size of slash bin slash bash because it's interacting with the glibc functions. It's cool. It's exciting. Sexy. Don't have to run everything through Xcode or even Playgrounds for that matter. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool. I'm actually just kind of digging through it for the first time now. I hadn't had a chance to before. Uh, it looks like they've put a ton of stuff here, so pretty exciting. You know, what, what a lot of these things need, though, is... Um, so I've used CoderPad before uh, in job interviews and stuff, text screening type stuff, and uh, nothing really beats the syntax highlighting and the syntax completion of Xcode itself. Uh, Playgrounds is, is pretty close. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it really came to my mind. It's like, wow, if I'm just looking at plain text, Objective-C in, in this circumstance that comes to mind, I'm like, wow, it's I can't even read the thing. I'm so dependent on my midnight color theme to tell yeah. me what everything is, just like true. red, that's a string, green, that's this, blue, that's that. That's absolutely right. You know, I saw a project, Jaime, recently that um, allows you to use SourceKit in other text editors, sort of like as an as an API. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? So like if you're building another text clue. editor, 
Yeah, if you're building another text editor, you can you can slip in this framework. Oh, now I'm going to have to find it. You're going to make me find it. Good. I'm going to do it. Um, Source Kitten. Source Kitten is the name of it. You ever heard of this? Mm. No, not ringing a bell. Okay. I will paste the link in, and you'll learn. So what this does is it's a framework for allowing you to add Source Kit to an editor of your choice. Source mm. Kitten. <laughs> Source kitten, kitten, yeah. Or not source kit, source kitten. That's right, source kitten. Mm. You can build on top of this and and give your give your editor source kit capability. And source kit, you know, for the record, is is the thing that does the syntax highlighting and and test completion inside of Xcode. The thing that crashes all the goddamn time, even now. So there it is. Cool. And if anybody's interested in in um, out there who's listening, driving in their cars. Um, <laughs> We'll put a link in the show note to a, a blog post that we came up uh, yesterday on com by Alex uh, Gallagher, Alexis Gallagher, uh, introduction to open source Swift on Linux. And he's got a, an example there on how to walks you through step by step on how to set up a virtual machine on your Mac and if you need to and uh, install Swift and go crazy. This is classic Linux as I'm browsing through this. Um, so we're going to. We're going to install Ubuntu, but to do that, you need to get VirtualBox. But to integrate with VirtualBox, you got to you got to install Vagrant, <laughs> um, and then we got to get a Vagrant file, and then we got to configure your Vagrant, and then we can start to compile. Do we have stuff. to, yeah, that's going to have to do the makes and the builds and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Yeah, this is Linux. This is Linux, baby. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I love it. I love it, but uh, it's uh, you got to laugh. <laughs> well, I, I just remember like uh, going back, like I don't know. I can't even remember where I was, but it, the I got Linux from my Mac, and I don't—I think it was a PowerPC Mac. That's how long ago it was, and it went through the whole process of installing it on the Mac and getting it built and whatever, and then it started, you know, hit run and got the environment up and st- stood there looking at my Mac with just you know black screen with text on it, going, "Oh my God, this is actually Linux," you know, like where's the UI? Yeah, anyway. yeah, those are the days. Yeah. I think my yeah, first there was, Linux there was, was nothing Fedora. more fun than than watching some, running a make file and having it go for three hours only to get to the end and and have some kind of dependency error and yeah having, yeah having to then go back and figure out where that came from and then run it for another three hours. That's one of the things I liked about the Mac actually. Yep. Not having to do that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we were talk we we got in a little bit into into developers uh, last week um, in terms of salary expectations and you know anyway but I was going to talk about this post that, uh, at the very bottom of the notes that I put in uh, uh, taxonomy. taxonomy yeah I don't know if you looked at that uh, nope. article at all I saw an article related to this on Hacker News in the past day or two yeah when I read it on Hacker News this was done by Triplebyte I have no idea who they are because I didn't read it that closely apparently but it was. The idea was what sort of individuals or what kinds of uh, stereotypes of programmers to uh, Y Combinator, the um, Valley-based incubator for startups, look for. I do, too. And I think that's what this link is. And they had this this notion of the taxonomy of uh, programmers. So this is basically like we've siloed engineers into these profiles, and we can tell you what kind of person you are. Yeah. Based on dot dot dot. Yeah, I don't fit any of those profiles, by the way. I'm not sure if I do. Practical programmer? I'm a practical programmer. Let's see. We solve practical programming problems with ease, even very abstract problems. Nope, no, nope, that's not me. They aren't comfortable with computer science terminology. 
Yes. Yeah, don't see. have a deep understanding of how computers work. Well, I think I do. Strongest with Ruby, Python, JavaScript. Not so much with lower-level languages like C. Oh, okay. See, I, I, I'm somewhere between a, a product programmer and practical programmer in that sense, but I do understand how computers work, so that's why I disagreed with this these boxes so i mean i don't want to be put in a box man no, yeah neither do i but yeah know, but that's what they want to put they want to put you in a box that's you gotta break happens. those chains that's what happens i think i'm gonna break free i'm a child prodigy programmer because i'm 19 years old are you yep. yeah mm-hmm. got any yeah, id there not. yeah right <laughs> i don't know i don't know what i'd be here i'm not really any of these i don't think no, I mean, and that's the thing is it's uh, all well and good for these guys to, I mean, it, it is good that they've done this, right? That they've, they've sort of broken it down. And I like the experienced but rusty programmer. Uh, no. Um, there was, I saw something else as too. There's also a tweet today about um, taking the word junior off of um, developers. Yeah, I saw that. That doesn't do anyone any favors, right? Is that what yeah, the, the yeah, intention yeah. was? Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. Unless you want to hang out with other junior programmers. Or, you know, developers. if you want to give the company an excuse to pay you as little as possible. Yeah. That seems like the more likely motivation. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I get that. <laughs> hmm. Did we have anything to say about this now that you guys have read this? Yeah, I'm looking really Mostly. So again, with all the caveats of it being difficult to put yourself in one of these tiny little boxes that they've chosen, mm-hmm. I think a lot of folks probably blend at least two, maybe even three of these. Yeah. Um, I lean more towards the product programmer. So associate performs well in technical interviews, not as motivated by solving technical problems. They want to think about the product, talk to customers, have an input into how product decisions are made. That describes a lot of what I do. But you're um, not. You're not a problem solver. So I'd like to see more than just the, you know, two sentences that they put here. Yeah. Because, um, right. I mean, if you perform well in technical interviews, like, you could I read that one of two different ways. I don't know if you guys noticed that or not. Yeah, I and, have and, we've, and, and we've talked about uh, <laughs> on the show uh, a little bit about some of the um, you know, the issues that you could run into, right? There's like a whole yeah. cottage industry around doing better on technical interviews. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and I, certainly there's a lot of a lot of issues that I take with the way that technical interviews tend to be done. One thing they're they're missing here, and it may be just related to the fact of well, to to what their goal was to find uh, com- uh, engineers for companies. Uh, mm-hmm. What they're missing, I think, is the entrepreneurial program. Yeah, yeah. Who is very interested in in product, but is but also has to be very strong technically and solve the technical issues because they're doing everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and has to be practical at the same time, be for the same reason. Uh, so, and that's kind of how I see myself, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that because, and and that, that's sort of the same with me. I mean, I wear, I paint many, wear many hats and perform many tasks. You know, wash the dishes, walk the dog, mm-hmm. write the code. You know, do the artwork. As comfortable with a stylus on my iPad Pro as I am with a keyboard and Xcode. And marketing. Don't forget marketing. Yep. I find it interesting when they decide to point out a particular technology, which is a little strange. So for the most part, these taxonomy bits that they've put on here mm-hmm. don't. But they went out of their way for the practical programmer yep. to yep. point out Ruby, Python, JavaScript, and not so much with lower-level languages like C, quoting here. Yeah, And then they go even further with the enterprise programmer. They say, hey, they mostly program in Java using Eclipse. And oh, by the way, they probably work for Dell, Oracle, and IBM. Yeah, what I don't like about the practical program description is that they're implying that they're using Ruby, Python, JavaScript because 
they kind of can't do the more advanced technical yeah. stuff like C. And These I, are I'm pejoratives. Not sure I'm really buy that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're definitely pejoratives. So you know, there's there's value judgments attached to these these silos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're like uh, mostly negatives. Like you know, I'm looking at uh, technical programmers. They aren't motivated to think about the user experience or product decisions. Pro- product programmers not motivated by solving technical problems. Maybe it's my uh, my looking for negative brain that's like trying to pick out the problem here. Um, actually, they seem to really like the child prodigy programmer. Why exactly? <laughs> They're cheap and they know their shit. <laughs> exactly. You know, is there is there actually work such a thing? Twenty four hours a day, twenty five hours yeah. a day for nothing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yep. Uh, same thing with a strong junior programmer. Oh my god! Like the the psychology of this article is fascinating, actually, because these are the people that people who pay for programming really want, right? You want a strong junior programmer. That's like a unicorn, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you want someone that you don't have to pay, but who knows their stuff, right? Yep. So look at the language in this thing. Fresh out of college, some internships, less than a full year of experience. But they really impressed during a technical interview, had numerous side projects, impressive knowledge of CompSci, and they're well above average. Come on. <laughs> Get the hell out of here. Yeah, so go, go into the link where they have the, um, like, who, why combinator companies want. And then there's just trail down to the advice. It, it's all a, a really good article to read. But it is I think very telling, right? So product-focused programmers pass more interviews. Correlation is not correlation, causation, of course. But company recruiter decisions are driven largely by pattern matching. And surprise, surprise, yeah. they find out like, oh, was your CTO a C-sharp, a Java programmer? Guess what? You are statistically more likely to get matched there and, and, and pass through. Oh, is is your founder somebody who's under 25 and has only written things in angular js guess what <laughs> candidates who look kind of like that profile you know, literally or not or, or mm. metaphorically tend to be in that same boat right it's like a field guide for people buying programmers it makes me creepy all right yeah yeah you can you can get the uh get the meal but you can't substitute the fries so I'm trying to what <laughs> i know right? it's, it's like it's like you're looking you're looking at your, you're you're ordering off a card right like this is this is like a, a rate card sort of thing in reverse mm. you're picking mm-hmm. from a menu of these are the five kind of developers that are out there right 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 uh, none of is. which match mm-hmm. the four of us am i correct saying that not exactly yeah yeah not not exactly bits and pieces here and there by the way so just for those those of us who don't know what is a y combinator Oh, that's a um, an organization that uh, I think more than once a year nowadays takes in a crop of young entrepreneurs okay. to uh, incubate their oh, like startup business. Okay, yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. But they're like uh, the 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 head of this whole movement, um, uh, and they're sort of the instigators of this whole you know live and breathe your startup for the next X number of months. There's a right. link in the in the notes there. Um, and, um, you know, it, I think the, the program is some, maybe three months or something like that. Right. And this is uh, like what you, Mars does with their incubator program. And, and yeah, this is more extreme though, because, uh, it tends to like just swallow your whole life. They encourage you to just give up everything and, and people it's really been conceived of for young people, right? Like, yeah, you know, just starting yeah. out in their careers, but because of the, the, the reach and the influence of the program, uh, people quit their jobs to do this. Really, you know, whether foolishly or not, right? Um, and so they they move to San Francisco. They they pay 
$2,500 a month for a closet to live in, mm-hmm. but they're hardly ever there. And they, they go and work on their startup. Uh, they get um, advisory services from the experts at Y Combinator because people like Paul Graham uh, are in charge of that thing. Um, they pr- present business plans. They do whatever right. it takes to get customers. And, you know, in the in the foment of the San Francisco Bay Area where all of these crazy startup ideas are coming and going all the time. So um, it is a hell of an experience. Uh, and they tend to do well, you know, uh, statistically speaking. I think the, the companies that come out of that program tend to do pretty well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a very well-known and, and well-respected incubator if if that is exactly what you want in a, right. in your life let's go around the table as we usually do and see if anyone has a pick for this week and where should we, we stop we're gonna stop we're gonna stop uh let's stop at aaron okay let's do that here we are i'm gonna close that window and that window and tell you about app cooker which is something i just picked up this week because i've been um been running into uh, some clients who would like me to price their apps for them. I want they want me to build an app, mm-hmm. and they want me to price it for them, and they want wireframes, right? Um, mockups, even, and they they like them as high fidelity as possible. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this has been happening over the last few weeks. You know, since I uh, ended my big contract and have been uh, entertaining smaller ones of late, and so there's a certain volume of this kind of work that I'm trying to sort of get my head around. And one of the big struggles is figuring out how I can easily create high fidelity or as high fidelity as reasonable mock-ups of these apps that we're talking about. I, in the early going, I was using Sketch, and mm-hmm. there are various uh, templates that are available for Sketch that allow you to put together a mobile application. Um, and it looks really great, but uh, it's actually quite a bit of work. And so uh, I wasn't really happy with that. Um, you, I use my whiteboard a lot in my office, and so I, I often find myself with a marker and just drawing you know, uh, hierarchical layers of, of screens that point to each other with boxes and images and labels and buttons and stuff. Um, but that's too low fidelity. It's not, um, not something that I feel comfortable or professional enough to give to a a client, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I uh, did some searching around, and I came across App Cooker, which is an iPad app that allows you to put together these mockups, and it's uh, it's actually excellent. Uh, when the um, when the iPad first came out in 2010, there was a company uh, in Toronto uh, that made an app called iMockups, and at the time it was pretty amazing, but a little bit cumbersome in how it worked. Basically, the concept is you've got a whack of visual templates representing all the elements of the UI in your application, and you drag and drop them and and change them on the screen using various controls. But those tools can be kind of cumbersome. Well, it feels like AppCooker, which is doing the same thing, has it it kind of figured out. It's much much smoother uh, and more intuitive, I guess I'll say, than any other tool I've seen like this. You basically create a home screen, uh, and you choose your platform first, like iPad, iPhone, uh, portrait, landscape. Uh, you can do either or both. And um, you can do uh, watch as well. Did I mention phone? Yeah, phone too. So I'm doing iPad apps for some reason, like people are asking me for them. But uh, So I'm doing iPad, and you can draw in a table view, drop it on the screen, size it as you like. And then you can edit the contents of the table view, section headers, rows. Uh, you can put you know, whatever you like, images, disclosure, triangles, uh, you name it. 
pretty much anything you see in Interface Builder, uh, you can do in App Cooker uh, in terms of UI. And um, you can put buttons in and have them link to another screen that you create. Uh, and then ultimately, you can actually produce a, um, a navigable uh, mock-up that you can run on your device uh, and give to the client. Um, what you can also do is, what I've done, is uh, export them to uh, PDFs. And so you have a PDF, and you can attach notes to these mock-ups, so you can kind of explain the elements on the screen alongside them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I found that uh, incredibly powerful, so I was able to produce a, a nice printed piece, a PDF, that I was able to hand to the client. Looks great, and uh, did the job. Now, the software is $30, and it's on the Mac App Store. Oh, sorry, iOS App Store. Um, <laughs> so it's way more expensive than your average app. And I say that only to warn you, uh, I didn't hesitate for a second, uh, given the size of the contract that was in contention. So it, uh, it actually does what it says on the tin. The reviews on the store are very positive, mm-hmm. uh, and it does work very, very well. So if you're looking for something like this, give App Cooker a look. Well, as a matter of fact, I am, and I, I think I asked you to show me at, on Monday when I saw you. True that. Um, I've been using a number of tools, and, I, and I'm in sort of the same boat as you. I have to come up with some prototype apps or, or even white f- wireframes in a lot of cases. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not so sure. I was trying to find a Mac solution for it, or I, I have been doing some wireframes on my iPad, as a matter of fact, using since I've got this great big iPad Pro to work on. Um, Things amazing, by the way. I keep thinking about it. Yeah, I have... Um, I have um, Interface HD, but what Interface HD did does it's similar to what the, the tool you're using, except it's it's for designing actual um, Xcode templates. So you can export these to, into Xcode once once you've got them finished off. And um, uh, I've never actually really gone through. You know, I've done a few login screens and that kind of stuff in, in Interface HD. But your app, you know, is essentially the same sort of thing. And I think Briefs is a similar tool like that. I looked at Briefs for a while. Uh, from mm, uh, Martian yeah. Craft, where you, yeah. it's a uh, Mac tool, you build it, and you can you can run simulations on your simulated apps on your uh, your phone. Like yeah. you can connect yeah. buttons and have have it do transitions and that kind of stuff. Does does this app have um, like push and push and pop and that kind of stuff or modal? Yeah, I believe it does. And have you I done- didn't like I, I didn't spend too much time with that aspect of it. Yeah, you but, were just uh, laying stuff out and and uh, and sending them to the client. I've used OmniGraffle in the past to do that kind of stuff as well for for just mocking up, you know, that kind of stuff, or even just drawing squares on a page, right? But uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, and and that, that that product I looked at the last couple of weeks ago, I talked about was uh, Adobe Comp, which I had just discovered. Uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm I'm curious to try give that one that you've got a a, a run for its money, see if it's. Uh, I mean, it's, for for your purposes, you you managed to land a, a job that made it all worthwhile, right? So, well, technically, I haven't landed it quite yet, but you're, uh, you're close. Right. Yeah, I think it's close. Yeah, I mean, it's a small thing, and, and again, it's it's priced like a pro app should be. I think you know we talked about that before, right? Something that that has a very small niche market and uh, has a, a great value for that market. So, I think it's a promising looking app. Yeah, I'm looking at interface. Uh, it's interface three now, I think. Yes, yes. I um, think so. And uh, they got a video. It looks really sharp. Um, looks like a nice app. Does very similar things. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there should be like a bake off. You know, someone should <laughs> take all these out for a spin, like the wire cutter or something, uh, and figure out which one is the best. Well, like I said, I, I've got a inter- interface HD. It's not a hundred percent. Not a hundred percent what I want out of out of what I'm looking for. Um, 
but but again, it was the same sort of idea. Is like you know, if you can't really mock things up in Xcode, you can, but it's it's cumbersome, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, because you, you can put a whole bunch of elements on the screen, and you can you can do a build and run and have a look at them. Or, or actually, now that we've got the um, the was it the view debugger, right? You can do yep. something similar there. You can lay stuff out and do a view debugger session and see what it looks like. That's sort of new in Xcode six, I think, was where that Seven. came out. Was it seven? Uh, oh no, no! I think you're right. Actually, six. Yeah, it was. Yeah, because when, when we first started getting into size classes, because you know you want to put stuff on the screen and then and do a um, do a, a, a display debugging session to like a four inch device or an iPhone six and then you know ro- rotate to the landscape and that kind of stuff. Um, but still, it's it's not a designer tool per se, right? And wireframing is it's a huge industry. I mean, it's it's a big part of of just about any job, whether it's a web development job or or an iOS app, right? That is true. It's all good. Alrighty. So um, I used I used this app, App Cooker, two maybe three years ago. I'm not exactly sure how long ago it was, and it was fantastic then. So I can really? only imagine what it's like now after a couple of years of refinement. And I think if folks aren't quite convinced by the um, endorsements here from um, Aaron and myself, go try out App Taster. So they have the App Taster that lets you download these these files, the output of uh, app cooker, and that one is free. Okay, so go cool. try out on their web page and appcooker.com. They have an iOS seven clock app and angry birds menu and an Instagram photo flow. So if you, if you want to see what is this going to feel like before you actually go and plunk down your, your $30, I'd say go try that out and, and see if it has the kind of the, the feel that you want on, of what kind of tool you're looking to do. Because there is stuff like like briefs, of course. Um, the thing that was fantastic for me on this one is I think at the time I was taking the train or something. And so I had a lot of time where I had a, um, you know, like an iPad with me, but I didn't necessarily have enough, you know, elbow room and knee room to pull out a MacBook Pro mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and steadily use it. And this is fantastic. You just kind of kick back on the couch, chill on the train uh, via the coffee shop and just start dragging and dropping things around and making Real good, quick animations and uh, real good interface mockups. That's in App Coder or App Cooker. Yes. Cool. Another another good endorsement. Hi, May. Do you have a pick? I do. So we talked about the unfortunate passing of the uh, WatchKit News newsletter, but maybe there's place in your heart for Swift Algorithm News, <laughs> a brand new newsletter that just started uh, five days ago. Right, so it's a curated publication predicated on you know Swift, of course, but also with an algorithms-centric view of it. So I believe it is done by Wayne Bishop, who's in Seattle, Washington, and uh, I believe he's also the author of a book you guys might have mentioned last week. It was a little hard for me to tell when I was uh, when I was driving and listening to the podcast. Um, I think it's the Swift Algorithms and Data Structures book that you guys might have mentioned. No, we mentioned the app, app or algorithm design manual. Okay. Okay. So you yeah, could have pulled over and looked at the, at the show notes. Uh, yeah, I probably should have. I, I think I probably could just pulled over on the um, on the highway there, just go on the shoulder and check. Um, yeah. So I failed to do that, but it's a, it's a similar kind of book. Is is the intention where you're uh, focused on algorithms and data structures, like you know, let's say bubble sort, quick sort, hash tables, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that kind of gives you an idea of the sort of content you're going to read in this newsletter. Granted, it's the very first one, right? Um, so we'll see how it, it turns out, but as a perfect example, um, it has a link here for algorithms through animation. So visualizing, you know, what does a linked list look like and how does that sort of work in a tactile sense and more than just a notional sense. 
uh, or even the Quora question of uh, why is a hash table faster than a loop? Right? Then that's just looping through an array, I think, was the intention there, just reading the, the headline. So something worth checking out. Um, I've, I must subscribe to about every newsletter out there. So, Especially with a curated nice service, eh? Sorry? <laughs> this curated service, you know, like all these newsletters, they look the same, right? So, Yeah, they need like, like curated I get the, uh, prime or something like that, yeah. Anyway, that looks sharp. I'm gonna, I subscribe to it just now. Cool. Yet another newsletter. Well, I had some real-time uh, follow-up here, which Aaron really seems to like. Um, and I just went, uh, asked our buddy Greg there to tell me about his pull request. And I've put a link in the show notes. Um, basically, uh, he yeah, he basically did a uh, fixed some comments up, and uh, of course, uh, Chris Latner approved it. And then he said, "Well, thanks, but we'll probably nuke that document anyway." Yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> but Nicely done. Greg's in the project, though. <laughs> yes, he is. Perfect. That's pull request number two eighty nine. For those of you driving in the car, um, <laughs> my- gosh, look at these pull requests, like. Uh, typo and grammar fixes. Hey, I think there's a typo in grammar there. So, <laughs> you know, it, you you could fill up your stats, folks. It, you don't have to be like, oh man, I'm. I, what do I know about building languages and all these data structures? Man, somebody out there's got to fix the documentation. Like, it clearly needs that. So, oh, go is, in there, have yeah, at it, cool. become part of the community, have your voice heard. Yeah, contribute, contribute. Yeah, I think Ryan Nystrom, who's uh, with Facebook uh, and part of the Ray Render team, he did an inspiration talk last year at uh, three or at, at uh, RW DevCon 2015, and of course the videos are available somewhere online. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, his his thing was about um, being part of the community and contributing back to the community. It's some it's, it's the minimum thing you can do uh, as as a you know human being on this planet. You know, make make some sort of mark in your in for some help somebody out teach them you know teach them one thing you may not be an expert in a particular subject but if you can teach someone else or bring them up to your level then at least you've given back to the community so so fix those typos aaron fix the typos i'm on it tim cool all right well my uh, my pick is uh, a little app i discovered and it, i think there's one called knock so my app is called mac id that i discovered i guess during cyber monday it was on sale and i had a look at it um and what's cool about it is um uh, and I, I alluded to it in the when we were talking about the watch earlier um basically what it allows me to use is touch id to unlock my mac so in other words uh you, you install a client on your um your macintosh and then you also uh, install the, the client on your or the iOS app on your phone, and you pair the two of them up, and you can um, basically anytime you need to um, log log into your Mac screen. My Mac locks itself, you know, every couple a couple of minutes if I walk away from the screen, so I'll get the login window. But it, beside it is a little circle which indicates that I can use Touch ID to open up the uh, that Mac. But what's cool about it is it also has a watch app implementation, and it's pretty quick, like in terms of how quickly it responds. Um, I can I can now initialize or I can actually log into my uh, Mac using my watch. Basically, I sit down at my Mac, and, you know, touch the keyboard, login screen comes up, the watch goes, hey, click here, and 
click a little button on the watch and, and it logs me into my Mac using the phone connection and the stored password on the phone, right? So mm, interesting. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, and obviously I think, you know, I can safely say that it seems to be a fairly quick Im- implementation. It doesn't take a long time. So, and I, and I sort of discovered that this afternoon by, by happenstance, because I, as I said, I was wearing my watch and I pulled up my Mac and um, as soon as I, I sat down, I, my watch went, Hey, do you want to log in? I went, Yes, you know, and then it was so faster than I could reach for the keyboard to enter my my uh, password, and it was basically the watch was saying, "Here you go, log in." So, and it's and it's you know it's super convenient, just one one tap on the uh, on the watch. Yeah, I tell you, if this thing is fast, then that would be pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, I didn't time it and whatever, but like like I'm saying, it was it's it's not like I tap it and I wait and I wait and I wait. I might as well enter my password on my on my device, you know, or on my keyboard. Um, no, it's 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 actually actually uh, very good. So it's kind of a cool little implementation. It's called Mac yeah. IDE. I was going to say that Macs have had um, authentication built into them for many years now. I mean, you could have you could use you know uh, what do you call those swipe cards and uh, thumb scanners, any kind of technology you plug it. You, literally, it's plug and play. It's been like that for years with Mac with Mac OS 10 to be able to you know put in some sort of authentication mechanism. So this is just another cool implementation of, of that kind of technology. And I suppose it's using a handoff or something like that, I guess, right? What do I you guess. Think? Don't know. And it must be encrypted. You would think. I mean, whatever it is, it's publicly available, right? Like, this is, this seems really cool. I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking at the website and, mm-hmm. wow, like, kudos to these developers for, for doing that, because this is the sort of thing I really want to be Sherlocked or uh, maybe acquired as, as a happier <laughs> thing. <laughs> hope these people are working in Cupertino next year, because, like, I the, the Apple Watch thing looks really cool. Yeah. I will be trying this. I don't know how they managed to get the little icon that I use on my watch or my Mac on, on their website. But the tennis ball? Yeah. Just came the one that comes pre-installed? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I never change those kind of things. <laughs> but it's funny. Okay. Oh, you can also use a custom pattern on your track, magic trackpad or your mouse, too. That's cool. I just saw that last the last the on the last uh, screen there, second last screen. Yeah, and, and, and I haven't shave tried, and I haven't a haircut, tried, two bits. I haven't tried. Yeah, I haven't <laughs> tried it uh, on. Uh, I, I mean, I'm going to try. I've, I've installed it on my iPad Pro, which also has Touch ID. I've got it on my on my phone. I've got it on my well, clearly. I've got it on, my, on the watch availability, but I also I haven't tried it on my other computer, which my wife usually sits at. But you know, maybe I can lock, unlock that one and just make it super super easy. I mean, the whole day, the whole days of. of I mean, be, uh, by the way, one password, guys. Knock knock. Hello. Um, all the days of, of entering passwords should be pass pass a. You know, we should be able to use Touch ID or, or those kind of technologies going forward. Or our watches. We'll give our give us our watches something to do. Open our Macs. Maybe Agile Bits should acquire Mac ID. Maybe they should. Hmm. Mm. Mm. All right. I'm at six uh, percent battery. Oh, that's not good. No. <laughs> and I, I did manage to get around my my problem with my uh, I, I wasn't I started force quitting apps that weren't responding and fortunately I was just about to force quit the Finder when when all things were real but but I just have to say just so you know I was using NetBeans earlier today or yesterday oh my and God. it runs on Java yeah obviously and it locked up my freaking Mac shocker <sighs> okay I don't know why anybody's surprised by that I... let's button her up Tim I got to get out of here. All right. I, I got a low battery warning. Oh, yeah. my God. Yes. Hey, a quick question just before you go. Dude. So so my phone says low, go to low power mode. What happens when I do that? It goes in low power mode. Can we uh, button this up? Okay. Uh, 
<laughs> Do you want a show tonight or not? So if people want to get a hold of you, Aaron, they on the go interweb, to Twitter a- at Aaron Vake. Okay, go go ask Jaime now. For goodness sake, I'm not I'm gonna lose my recording. <laughs> okay, bye, Aaron. No, no, seriously, go to the rest of the show. Come on. Uh, so um, Jaime, if people want to get a hold of you on the interweb, where they would they go? On Twitter, ask. <laughs> <laughs> Let me restate that one. How about chopping that one? On Twitter as at Dev with the Hair. Okay, and Mark, if people want to get a hold of you by email. Mark R at smapsoft.com. All right, well, that's it. Episode 70 or 69 is in the bag, and 70 is coming up. So we'll say goodbye. Oh, goodbye to next yeah. week. And goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've just experienced the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you'll find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show, picks for the episode, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website and write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow the show on Twitter at mtjc underscore podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening. Again, by my uh, co-host in. <laughs> sorry, ah. sorry, yeah, oh. sorry, 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 eh? Sixty-nine, dude. I, I knew you were. Gonna, I knew somebody was going to say that. It was me. Okay. Um. Damn if I can yeah. remember. It was that dog? You and your little dog too. You and your dog Toto too. <laughs> <laughs> Got me. The oh, peanut well. gallery, yeah. we can call them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know what I was going to say. Um. <laughs> I love it when he says that. <laughs> yeah, that's his, that's his, his thing. It, well, not, not, not last week. You really let me down, Mark. Try to mix it said, up a little bit, you know? Nah, you hey, everybody is so nice. Yeah. Good. For, all, the, all the cool kids now say, hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks to Mark. Yeah. Or what's, that, what's the guy on, on uh, The Simpsons, the, the Hispanic doctor guy? Hispanic doctor guy. Oh yeah! Hey everybody, yeah. try oh, the Dr. best. Nick. Now try the rest. <laughs> <laughs> that's him. I don't know what his name. I didn't is. realize he was Hispanic. I think so. Well, that's more than I knew. I don't know. He's yeah. You know, I don't know. He's olive colored. What can I say?